This is God's word. Let's give careful attention to its reading. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. That ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Well, as I mentioned at the start, we're returning to this series on Psalms, and it will probably go on for some time because when I started this, I made comment from some of the folks I've been studying that, for example, Luther is the one who calls the book of Psalms a little Bible. He believes it's so complete that basically you can you find the messages of the other portions of the Bible contained in it, in the book of Psalms. And just a reminder of where we have been, I mentioned that Psalms 1 and 2 serve as something of a gateway, a gatepost, a doorway into the life that the Lord has provided for us. And so we spent time, uh, I did, in preaching sermons on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 that give us those expressions of the life of the people of the covenant that individual person blesses that person who dwells on the law of God, and we'll, that theme will be repeated tonight. That that uh, corporate theme, kingdom theme, of of why do the nations rage? God has established His Messiah upon His throne, etc. Kiss the sun. That those great kind of the here's the godly individual. Here is the godly king and his kingdom. And as we walk through, what do we walk into? 
This is my way of picturing the progression that I'm outlining for us. So if you walk through the door, what have you walked into? Well, you walk into creation. And if you'll remember, we spent time reading, it's one of the longer Psalms, Psalm 104, which was this, this glorious celebration of the created order of how... As we look, and, and I, I, maybe some of you remember the great application, and I still practice it today, and we're all still to be practicing this. The great application is, do we want to know that God exists, that he's near, that he's good, that he's powerful, that he's wise? Do we want to know all those things? Look out your window. Look out your window and see it. Well, now, if we wanted to, and by the way, we had a little excursus or whatever the term is, when we also saw that something as contemporary as the persecuted church in 2019, Psalms relate to that as well, because we took time on the special Sunday evening when we prayed for the persecuted church to have um, a thought from Psalm 94. But so... As we, as we think, so where do we go now? As we're in, we've gone through the doorway, we're in creation, what happens next? And my mind was drawn to think about the Garden of Eden. God created, there's creation, He made it, uh, and, and so there it is, He's sustaining it, and so He makes Adam and places Adam in the garden, and what and Eve, yes, uh, there I'm thinking particularly chapter two. And when Adam is placed in the garden, what next happens? God gives Adam his word. He says, Adam, you're in this garden, you're to keep it, and etc., and and to have exercise dominion over it. And that's what we're going to look at, really, for probably tonight and two others. Because this psalm, you, most of you, my guess is, uh, are familiar enough. You saw that central portion that uh, relates to the Word of God. And then we're going to do that tonight. And then I feel like I want to try to um, arrange the vast information of Psalm 119 in two sermons. So we have tonight, we'll have Sunday night, Lord willing, on the 29th of December, Psalm one, uh, 119 then, and then we'll go to January 5th. Those will be, we've, we're in a series of about three successive Sunday night services in a row. And that's kind of where we're going, and I hope that you will see the importance. There's a awful lot of information about the Word of God. The psalmist regularly think about it. So that's our introduction. So now we are in Psalm 19, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the opening six verses because I really want to say to you, here it is. This is, this is now Psalm 104, you might say in miniature, where, but, it, but note we are talking about revelation. We are talking about the truths of God being revealed. The, the, the words about language are, are pronounced. Uh, that's an unintended pun. But uh, they're numerous in here. 
But it's the heavens. What, it, what do they do? They declare. The sky proclaims. Day to day pours out speech, reveals knowledge. And what's interesting is, of course, no sound is heard. We are not hearing audible messages to our ears. We are not hearing propositions and sentences and such. But it is, you might call it, visual language. Just as we said, looking out our window and seeing these. But it is all about revelation. That's there. And he picks especially the sun as that. And what is, which by the way, has very important implications for then and really even for now, because in many religions, the sun itself was worshipped. The psalmist David here is saying, yeah, there's a sun there, but that sun is there not to be worshipped. That sun is a testifier to the true God who exists. Oh. And so there's that aspect of it. And that's really about all I want to say. If you want to know more about uh, uh, creation revealing God, perhaps go to that sermon on Psalm 104 or do some reading on that. But I want to move more quickly. That's the first light. I entitled this sermon, The Three Lights. And by light, I'm using that as the idea of revealing, of communicating truth and knowledge. And so the first voice, the first light, is the light of creation. And in theological terms, we, we call that general revelation. And so, but it's, but it is real revelation. The message is being communicated. Uh, concerning our God. And uh, so that's the first light. But I want to spend more time now on the second great light that is here in this psalm. And it is on the spoken, written, especially the written word of God. And here we get to even greater clarity concerning who God is and what He is like and how we are in relationship to Him. And uh, so there's greater clarity there and, and even more revealed concerning Him. There are things in general revelation that simply are not uh, done. Like you don't, you don't really see the plan of salvation in general revelation. It requires God coming and revealing that, and we have it in written form now. Okay, so this is verses 7 through uh, 11, 7 through 11, and it's quite clear. It becomes very obvious. The This is David writing and we, what we have here is seven times now we have the name of Yahweh. Sometimes it's pronounced Jehovah. But it is the covenant name of God that is used here uh, six times in this section concerning the word. And it's used a final time at the very conclusion of the psalm. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So 
now, and I make that distinction because in the opening verses concerning general revelation, the general word El, Elohim, for God was used. Now, with the coming of God's word implied in that is the fact that he is this God that entered into covenant with the people of Israel. We think all the way back to the burning bush with Moses where the name of God, Yahweh, was revealed to him. And so that that is the covenant name of God. And with the covenant now comes covenant documents, let's say, this word. And so this is the this is the word of God. It is his law and it is his, his revelation in scripture format, in written form. Um, this section can come in about three different, uh, what's the word, aspects to it. Let me just mention them and we're only gonna, we're only gonna deal with a little bit of it. But I call it the nouns the adjectives and the verbs. The nouns, the adjectives, and the verbs. And all I'm going to do is just point those out to you and then make a couple of observations. But the nouns, the law, the law of the Lord, verse 7. The testimony. Well, you know, it's a, it, obviously a different word. And, and so scripture, by saying testimony, it brings into view the idea of a courtroom and of giving official testimony. The word of God is the, that, you might say, legal, binding, under oath testimony. This is who I am. This is who I am. It's his testimony. There are precepts and commands. The precepts of the Lord are there. The commandment of the Lord. And then you get an interesting term, the fear or reverence. And this is a little unusual term for a written document to call it the fear of the Lord. But if we know enough about the scriptures, we know that a God-fearer is somebody whose life is in accord with the written document. So you get the fear of the Lord. You get ordinances or judgments, uh, the rules of the Lord, that is. And all of these terms together show the purpose of this revelation, to bring God's will to bear on the hearer and to evoke from us, to get a response from us of intelligent reverence, of well-founded trust, and of detailed obedience, Derek Kidner says. The Word of God comes with all these dimensions to it. It's to say Torah or law of God is, you know, it's more than just commandments. It is that. But we also know that there's history there, that there are statements and descriptions. There is testimony. There are promises. We just read, interesting, how Peter described in 2 Peter chapter 1. He said, what did we have? Well, we do have great and wonderful laws, but that's not what he said. He said, oh, we have great and precious, what? Promises. 
the promises are every bit as much God's word. And so though, uh, I'm going to say no more. Those are the nouns. The adjectives are, look at the descriptions that are here. The law of the Lord is what? Oh, it is perfect. There is not fault in it. The word, excuse me, the testimony of the Lord is sure. That which is firm, that which is confirmed or verified, it's the record of his own witness to who he is and what he will provide for us in Jesus. It is right. In other words, where do you go to find what is morally right and straight how to live? You go here. You go here. It is right. It is pure or clean. God's commandments shine and shimmer and glow. They are brilliant and bright, says one. It is true. They are, or, or they are true and righteous altogether. What God, what God says in this book is never false. Never false. It is always true. So in all of these adjectives, uh, they, uh, they move completely in a world different from the idea of compromise or insincerity or the half-truths that we often encounter in our own speech, uh, whether intentional or not. But once again, there's so much here to meditate on, but I'm going to move now to the verbs because this is what I want to focus on tonight from this middle section. This I'll come to three or four applications. But we want to see that the Word of God used by God, God will honor the Word of God. This is one of the clearest statements where we understand that the Word of God works. The Word of God bears fruit. The Word of God produces something. Or, and you see it in these, these verbal statements. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? It revives the soul. And we can go through this. The testimony of the Lord is sure. What? It makes wise. We're going to be emphasizing some of these things. And then there's this issue of joy. There's the issue of enlightened eyes. Whether in the Old Testament or in the New. I'm thinking of Paul's prayer uh, in Ephesians where he speaks about the eyes, not these eyes, but the eyes of our hearts. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might understand certain things. And so the... The Word of God is there. So four of them, reviving, making wise, rejoicing, and enlightening, enlarge on what the Scripture does for us, God's people. Uh, there are two more that really speak to the Scripture themselves. That is, that it is enduring and righteous altogether. Okay, let me make a few points. So what, what does that mean then? We're looking at it. You can read it as well as I can. But I want us to hear, we have the word of Yahweh. We have it. It was repeated six times. The law of the Lord, the commandments 
of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord. We have the word of the God who spoke and made this world. We have the, the word, his message of the God who, who lives forever and ever, who has sent his son that we celebrate here at Christmas time. We have his word. And it's in a book. And it's a book that we have access to. A second truth applicable, and we'll get to some application here. A second truth then. In this, I say secondly, the word of Yahweh is unique. What I mean by that is, to my knowledge, that's really understated. I'll say it more positively. There is no other place to go to get the word of Yahweh. There are there there is no volume two. There there is no um, uh, other religion. I'll just say it that way. There is no other religion where where Yahweh has said. Oh, by the way, I stamp. Uh, my, my stamp of approval is on 75% of Buddhism. That's never done. It is uniquely here. It is uniquely, solely, only here. Now, the, now of course, it's in, it's in the reading of it. It's in preaching uh, uh, in the written form and things like that. But it is here. And then, as I said earlier, the word of Yahweh works. And I just want to make comment on three things. I want to summarize what we can expect from the faithful, the humble submission, listening, uh, the, the prayerful uh, reading and desire expressed before God. Lord, teach me your... What, what results from that? How does it work? Well, the first benefit, I mentioned three, it's the benefit of life. The benefit of life, and that is clearly seen in that verse 7. It's the word reviving, or another translation would be to restore life. Your life is either non-existent or it's, there's a sense in which life as a human being is always in jeopardy. And the law of the Lord, the word of God, continues to be a source of fuel, to, continues to be the way in which your life is restored, it's revived, it is enhanced, is that not exactly, you just got to love the, like I said, the fact that we so happen to read 2 Peter 1 with this sermon tonight. He said, we have great and precious promises. And what do they do? They, they move us to life, an appropriate expression of life in Christ. And that's what's here. What is the, what is the, well-known statement from our Lord. 
Satan comes to him when he's in the desert and says, turn these stones into bread. And perhaps we could probably all repeat it. His response, which is a quote from the word of Yahweh in Deuteronomy, is man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that, come on, say it with me, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I didn't hear a whole lot. We got to get more familiar with the word of God. But do you hear the principle there? He's in the desert having fasted, and we would think, Lord, your physical life is about to perish. Oh, but he says, wait a minute. The God who sustains my life says, this is what sustains my life. His word. David is speaking to that point. All right, so do you want to really live? Do you, do you want uh, a revived Christian life? Where are you going to find that? You will find it returning sincerely, earnestly to the word of the Lord. Uh, what's the second benefit? The second benefit is wisdom. It says clearly in verse 7, making wise. And I think that's a similar idea behind the, uh, the idea of enlightening the eyes. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What is being said here, I think, God is the essential reality. You and I never really understand any aspect of our lives unless we understand it in relationship to God. The world is constantly trying to tell us what is true about and you can pick it up, you, whether it's economics, whether it's sexuality, whether it's marriage, whether it's um, pick any subject you want, how to conduct a business, how to play sports. It is always trying to do that unconnected to God. Wisdom, because what? Because God exists. We live in his world, remember? He is uh, we are therefore accountable to him. He owns it all. He planned it all. He knows the rules by which it happens. And so instead of listening to the darkness and dizziness of a, a deadly world system, we come back to the word of God to find out about finances, to find out about who I am, to find out about sexuality, to find, the list goes on and on. It makes wise because it is always directing us to understand how the components of my life relate to the true God. And the third benefit that is here is that it is joy. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I think sometimes we don't really think that way about, I'll say at least portions of the Bible. We like 
some of the wonderful promises and things, but when we think about the Old Testament scriptures, we may not really think about them as joyful. And yet David does. David does. Matter of fact, not only is the very statement there that they are uh, that they rejoice the heart, but he gives a picture of of something in that time frame that would be basically illustrative of joy. What is that? Well, it's like my, my goodness, these things are sweeter than honey. Sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. Sweeter than going and somehow getting that freshest bit of honeycomb from this hive out in the field and just just drinking it down. What a joyful experience to a to, to a shepherd in Israel in the time. They would have loved that. It's one of the greatest things David can compare reading God's word to. And so let's just make the obvious application. Do you want to really be alive? Do you want that life to be marked by wisdom? Do you want your life to be marked by more joy? It's as crystal clear as can be tonight. You come here. You come here and believingly read and study and meditate upon the Word of God. Okay, we need to press forward. So that's the second great light, and we're going to kind of flesh that out some in the next two Sundays as we look at aspects of it from Psalm 119. But now, think for a moment. We've got all of creation. If we, if we use the illustration back in the Garden of Eden again, we've got God has made all of creation First great light, speaking about him. Second great light, he gives us his word in this creation, so we know how to live in this creation. But then I'm, uh, I've already assumed that you already see the third one. What is the third great light? The creation glorifies God. The word of God glorifies God. Where else is the glory of God supposed to come? From us, right? From us. We are made in his image. You're not a very responsive group tonight. Let me see if you respond to this. What, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to... Oh, and, and matter of fact, and to enjoy him, right? That's a, that's a wonderful thing that the uh, framers of our catechism brought together. But there it is. And you see what you see now why the psalm, it includes all three. And you see now why the psalm ends in the prayer that it does. David, these last uh, four verses, verses 11 through 14, they're a very much a heartfelt response of David, the worshiper, especially to the written word. David is reflecting on himself in relation to God and yes, to his creation to some extent, but also to his revelation, to his word. And this is what initiates and fuels the, the prayer that's here. Um, this, is, this is a prayer that results 
precisely out of the fact that it was really related in verse 6 where it says nothing is hidden uh, from the sun's heat. Nothing is hidden in general revelation. Nothing is hidden before God uh, and his written revelation. And David feels that. He knows that. And he knows, well, how did this section, this middle section end? It ends with the fact that the word of God comes to us with both warning and with reward, both warning and with blessing. Verse 11, by them is your servant, who is your servant in this text? The servant is David, but it's really all of us as we now have the text in front of us. By this, your servant is warned in keeping them. There is great reward. And so now David says, okay, I am also supposed to glorify God. And the way I do that in his creation is according to his word. And I am aware of failure. I am aware that I am a sinner. And so what does he do? Let's take a look here. He speaks of two kinds of sin. And the first is in verse 12. He speaks of hidden sin. Uh, And the question, who can discern his errors? He's so aware that sin is often so subtle and and our hearts are so deceptive. Uh, And so he, he, he he begins this prayer Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Uh, It's not sin often like that in our lives. We we sometimes wonder where these temptations come from. Why did I speak as I do? And it it baffles us. It confuses us. Uh, And when we say here that it is hidden... What is interesting is that it doesn't mean that they are that that my sins are hidden from you, and they're certainly not hidden from God. But what he's saying is he's aware that he doesn't know all of his sins. He's aware that his heart can be so twisted and and unknown to him that he doesn't know all of his sins. Um, John Piper on this says, Our errors are often hidden from ourselves. Not in the sense that we don't know the action we did. That is, he would say, if you could recount your actions, you would know, yes, I did say that. Yes, I was here. Yes, I did do such, such and such. So you're aware, if you were asked... But Piper says, our errors are often hidden from ourselves, not in the sense that we don't know the action we did, but we don't feel the sinfulness of it. We just don't see our sin as sin. We know what we said, we know what we did, but we are blind to the sinfulness of it. Uh, How many times have we said something and then maybe moments later you realize, Oh, I didn't realize this person, I should have known this person had had this experience or whatever, and what I said was inappropriate. You know, that's that baffling and unknown aspect of it, and David recognizes that about himself. And so the request he makes is specifically, Lord, declare me innocent. That is, 
forgive me. Paul would say, justify me. John, the apostle, would say, as he does, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. And and here comes a wonderful statement. And to cleanse us from all iniquity. You see how that comes together when you have David revealing? Man, sin is baffling at times. Well, the second one is much more interesting, uh, actually serious. Uh, He uses the language presumptuous sin. And this is something along the lines the Old Testament calls the sin with the high hand. Uh, It's an attitude uh, that David calls presumptuous sins because they're fully intentional. We go into them with our eyes open and with the heart that says, I know God says this is wrong and harmful, but I just don't care what God thinks. And you may be thinking, what? Can a Christian be like that? And the answer is yes. And I'm going to try to summarize things quickly. I know time is passing, but this is important. Turn to uh, 1 Samuel 25. Turn to 1 Samuel 25. Because I will summarize this. First Samuel 25, David is king. Samuel has died, and he is going out into the wilderness, and he runs into Nabal. Uh, Nabal is a very wealthy man. David sends, in summary, David sends out some of his men saying, Would you please help feed my army? Nabal, if you were, if you're in 1 Samuel 25, um, Nabal has his uh, treats David's servants this way in verse 11. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from uh, I do not know where? And so David's young men turned away and came back and told him, told David all this. Now look at what David the king, a saved man, does. David said to his men, every man strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. What was David going to do? David was going to probably kill Nabal and take whatever he wanted from his stuff. There's no question about that. Nabal's wife, Abigail, intervenes. And, and David does not do that. Later, when Abigail tells Nabal, her husband, about what happens, God uses all of this to strike Nabal, and Nabal dies. Now pick up at verse 39 of 1 Samuel 25. Verse 39. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said this, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. And listen to this. And has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. If you turn back to Psalm 19, look at the prayer request in verse 13. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. 
It's right there as clear as day. And so what do we need? What do I need? What do you need for glorifying God in His world according to His Word? I need pardon and oh, do I need power. I need God coming and keeping me from doing things that my old sinful nature would rise up and do. And I'm just going to end too much here, but I want you to see, I want you to go away from tonight knowing here is a prayer you ought to memorize and pray regularly. And as you do that, this is a a very practical prayer of Scripture and you know that God will hear it and God will answer it. It is an inspired prayer. We ought to regularly pray, Lord, please forgive my many sins, some I don't even know about, and would you keep me back? Would you empower me? Note the language that they not have dominion over me. That's exactly what Paul will say in Romans chapter 6. Sin shall what? Not have dominion over you. Would you please empower me to stay away from presumptuous sins and so live as that all through and through from the meditations of my heart through what I say to what I do will be acceptable in your sight. That's the kind of life we want to have. We want to know I'm living in God's world that declares His glory. I have His Word that will work to give me true life that is wise and joyful as I will entrust myself to Him and ask for His power and His pardon in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your love and Your mercy. Thank you for the, the practicality of, uh, of the psalm here. Thank you for David and his transparency and, and the way you worked by the power of your spirit to get him to synthesize these three great lights. Oh Lord, that we might be so. That our lives might truly live to your glory. And so this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.